It is uh, good to uh, be here with you. Can you uh, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Okay, and then can you, uh, can you say back to them, uh, God is here with us today. All right. Um, I hope and I, I pray and I trust and I believe that we believe this to be true. Um, because if he's not, then... Uh, there's really no, uh, no real good point for us to be here apart from God's presence. Um, and he promised that he would be here with us. So um, we believe that and we, uh, we enter into this place with that, with that understanding. As we uh, go through this uh, short series on the, on the book of Romans, what we've got so far, uh, last, <clears throat> the last time I, I preached, we kind of got to what's the linchpin of the Christian faith. It's this idea called justification by faith that set a revolution uh, in the church and uh, changed everything since that point in time when they understood uh, what it meant that we could stand, we who are guilty before God of moral and spiritual uh, failure before God, the, the Bible calls it sin, that we who could do no right but could only do wrong, it is possible that we, people like that, could stand before a perfect God and be considered righteous, be considered holy, be treated as if we had never sinned. That's the idea of justified, not only forgiven, but he looks upon us as if we'd never sinned. And that had nothing to do with what we did. Doesn't matter if you're the worst of criminals or what the world considers to be the greatest of saints. Doesn't matter what we did or what we didn't do. That's independent of all that. God says, I love you, I approve you, I accept you, I affirm you, and I welcome you into my family. Not because of what you've done, but because of what my son Jesus did on your behalf and you have a choice. Either you will trust your record and your efforts, or you'll trust in the record and the efforts of Jesus. He said, if you trust in Jesus, then God looks upon you as if you'd never sinned. This is crazy. It's world-changing stuff, and that's why missionaries give their lives. That's why people say, um, I'll do whatever it takes, and I'll follow you, because this message has changed lives, and it's changed continents, and it's changed the world. And so if you think about that, and you follow that logic that Because of nothing I've done, but because of the work of another, I can be loved and cherished and accepted. And once I'm in, I'm always going to be in. Then the temptation might be to think, well, if that's true, then isn't it also true that if God loves me because of nothing that I have or have not done or or will or will not do, then I can do whatever I want to do. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Uh, You might have heard people talk like that. Hey, you know what? I gave my life to Jesus. I trust him. I'm going to heaven. And that's security. So I can do whatever I want to do. I can cheat. I can lie. I can mess around with my significant other. I can cheat on my spouse. I can whatever it is that I want to do. There's freedom to do that. The question is, is that true? And is that right? And is that acceptable? So understanding what we've read in Romans chapters 1 through 5, we get to this point in Romans chapter 6 where the author of this letter, Paul, begins to anticipate these questions. And so he asks that question in two ways in Romans chapter 6. And we're going to read those questions. We're going to read Romans 6 verses 1 through 23. And we're going to ask and we're going to answer those questions. You can predictably know that the the answer to this question is going to be, no, you can't do that. But why is that the case? Why is it? that it is not acceptable for us to think and to live that way. We're going to read Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 23. Uh, we're going to see Paul's question and then 
uh, two answers. Okay, this is the word of God for the people of God, Romans 6, uh, starting in verse 1. In light of everything that he's talked about in chapters 1 through 5, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Okay, so the idea is that the more we sin, God's grace is going to go one step further than us. Right? We will never sin too much that his grace uh, cannot rescue and save us, will not do that for, if we're a child of God. And so he says, all right, then if that's true, why don't we keep on sinning so that grace might get bigger and bigger and bigger? Is that acceptable? Verse 2 by no means. Another translation says, may it never be that we think this way. Uh, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you ain't under law, but under grace. What then? Here he asks another question. Shall we sin, because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. May it never be. Don't you know, when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly uh, obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God's word. This is awesome, right? I, you know, as usually is the case, man, if we could, if we could take like five weeks, ten weeks to, to kind of pull apart this, this text, we would, but we've only got the next few minutes. So we're going to do our best. The book of Romans, magnum opus of the gospel in, 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 in Scripture. If the Bibles, uh, every one of our Bibles were to be burned, all the Bibles in America and the world were to be burned um, by some world leader, and they said, you can have nothing but we'll give you one book of the Bible. One book of the Bible. 
I think we need to choose as we think long-term, not only for our spiritual benefit, but for the continuation of Christianity in our life, in our world, beyond our lives. It has to be the book of Romans because this is, we see in here, the clearest picture and the fullest depiction of the gospel and of the heartbeat of Christianity. If you break it up into its component parts, simple outline, chapters one through three talk about sin. That's the bad news. That's what's wrong with the world. It's sin, one through three. Chapters four and five talk about salvation. This is what God has done for us in Christ. It's the good news. Here we start chapter six through eight, talk about sanctification, this process of us becoming more like Jesus. Chapters nine through Uh, 11 talk about the sovereignty of God over all of that, and chapters 13 through 16 talk about serving God as a result of our salvation. Here's what a lot of us do, okay? We move from sin to salvation, and then from salvation we jump all the way over to service, skipping over this massive piece of God's sanctifying work in us. And so we get saved, we come to know Jesus, I want to give my life away. We do that without understanding the nature of sanctification, God changing us, making us more like his son Jesus, then our service will become shallow and short-lived and will burn out very quickly. Sanctification, a massive piece to our relationship with God, how we change, how we grow, how we become more like Jesus. It's this massive theological doctrine that we get into here because the question we've been confronted with is, okay, now that I'm saved, is it possible for me to have Jesus as my Savior, I'm going to heaven, and still be the own master and Lord of my own life, or at least not have Jesus as my master? Is that possible? In other words, verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law? but under grace. Is it okay? Is it cool for me? Just go and live however I want to live. Am I free to do that? And Paul writes in, these, in this chapter, absolutely not. May it never be. By no means. Why not? Because here's the first thing. Dead people can't sin, and married people don't cheat. Okay, that's the first thought here. Two thoughts here. Why is it that we cannot go on sinning Because God has saved us. The first thing, dead people can't sin. You know, dead people are like this, right? Uh, my, <laughs> uh, my son Elijah, when he was a baby, uh, was one day playing with one of uh, his older sister Manny's dolls, like baby dolls, and he was trying to, like, give it food, right? Feed it, not real food, but fake food. And so he picked up this, this toy food, and he started trying to get a baby doll to eat it. He said, eat, baby doll, eat. <laughs> and uh, the baby doll didn't eat. Right? No surprise there. So he said, Dad, Daddy, why isn't baby doll eating? I said, oh, you know, it's probably just not hungry right now. And he said to me, no, Daddy, maybe it's because it's not alive. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's, you know, probably the best answer. I wasn't expecting, I mean, if you wanted to ask in that way, I would have told you the same thing. But he's right. If you're not alive, you can't eat. If you're dead, you can't eat. If you're dead, you can't talk. If you're dead, you can't sit. If you're dead, you can't, you can't do anything if you're dead. And if you're dead, you can't sin either. If you look at the first 15 verses of chapter 6, the key word that Paul is getting at is dead. Okay? Look at, look, in verse 2, we died to sin. At the end of verse 3, baptized into his death. Verse 4, through baptism into death. 
just as Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 5, like him in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified. Verse 7, anyone who has died. Verse 8, now if we died. Verse 9, raised from the dead. Verse 10, the death he died. Verse 11, count yourselves dead. You can go on and on and on and on. But in the first few verses, that's the key word that, G, that Paul is getting at here. We're dead. <laughs> that's it. We're dead. And if you're dead, you can't sin. Well, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. Of course we sin. But the argument here is, hey, listen, listen. Understand this. The reason why you can't go on sinning is because you died. And dead people can't keep on sinning. It's a pretty clear picture. Uh, you died to sin. That's what he's saying. Because we're breathing, we're looking at each other, we're sitting here, we're listening to the word of God. So we're alive in some sense, but in another sense, he says, you're dead. If you put your trust in Christ, he's saying, you've died to sin. What does that mean? It's like you, you, you're a girl and, and, and your boyfriend does something really stupid, and so you break up with him. And because you're really upset with him, you don't ever want to see him again for the rest of your life. You said, you know what? He's like, can we still be friends? You're like, No can't still be friends. You are, you, you know what? You're dead to me. Have you ever said that to someone? Has someone ever said that to you? Ouch. You are dead to me, meaning I don't want a relationship. I have, there is zero relationship between you and me anymore. And what Paul is saying, this is what sin has said to you and to me if we follow Jesus. He says, you are dead to me. There is no relationship anymore. And the way that Paul pictures it is he presents this picture of baptism. You're baptized in his death, and you're raised up into his life. We, when we baptize people, we say two things happen here. We are doing a funeral, and we are doing a wedding. When you're baptized, it says you're dying to sin. You're dying to yourself. Okay, that's what it is. It's a goodbye to my old way of doing life. The way that I used to live, the sinful life, I'm saying I'm dead to that. There's a funeral to that life. Then we have a wedding to Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying then. He's saying 2,000 years ago, you see on the mountain on the hill called Calvary, there are two thieves, and there is a man in the middle. And as you get this picture of who that person is, as you walk closer and closer and closer, a preacher named Ray Pritchard says it like this. says, as you get closer and closer, you begin to realize, wow, that person, it should be Jesus, but looks very familiar to me. I know those hands. I know those feet. I know, and that face is your face on the cross, crucified. Says, this is what it means, that in a very real way, when Jesus died on the cross, you too died with him to sin. You no longer live to sin anymore. As far as it relates to you and sin, what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is there is no relationship anymore. What does that mean? Does that mean we are perfect now? Of course not, because we know that we've all sinned, and we know that today we've sinned, and we continue to sin, and maybe even during these moments that I've been talking, we've been sinning. What does it mean then that we're dead to sin? It means that sin is no longer your master. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the, uh, in, in, the next, uh, in the next thought that we have. But he says there's a funeral, and so you no longer live anymore. Not only is there a funeral, but there's also a wedding. 
at baptism, not only are we saying, I died with Christ, but we're saying, hey, you know what? I identify with, I, I, uh, for whatever it is, I'm committing my life to walk with the one who's committed himself to walk with me. It is a sign and seal of God's grace over our lives to say, from now on, I identify myself with the crucified and risen Nazarene, Jesus. He is my identity. Sin is no longer my daddy. That's no longer my last name. That's no longer my identity. I now identify with Christ. I am a Christ follower, a Christian, a little Christ, and this is now my life. So he says, because of that, if you're married to Christ in that sense, married people do not cheat on their loved ones knowing that they will love them no matter what happens to them, no matter what they do. And this is what happens at, at weddings in our day that you've been to. Right? A husband and wife will stand up there and they'll make a vow between each other in the presence of God and before all of these witnesses that no matter what happens in the traditional Victorian vow, say that, say, I will uh, pledge my life to you, right? to have and to hold for better or for worse in sickness and in health, in richer and poorer, and all of these things until death do us part. You can imagine husband and wife get married, and on their wedding day, on their wedding night, they get married, their wedding night, husband says, hey, baby, uh, I'm so glad you made those vows to love me no matter what. When we're rich, you're going to love me. When we're poor, you're going to love me. When things are going great, you're going to love me. And when everything hits the fan, you're going to love me. When I'm, when I'm the, the perfect man, you're going to love me. And when I'm the worst man, you're going to love me, Right? Like, that's what I've pledged to you, and you've pledged the same to me. And he gets really happy about that, and he says, man, this is so great to know that I am loved always and forever, never to be put away. And so he goes out with his wife's money, depletes her savings account, depletes his savings account, and then he wastes it in a night of debauchery, of wine, women, song, dance, all of the things that he does, and he wastes it. Messes around with other people, calls out his former girlfriends, hangs out with them, spends a night with them, and then he gets back, punch drunk, about three in the morning. She says, honey, where have you been? I've been waiting for you. And he says, ah, I was just out, hanging out. With who? With what? And he tells her. He's like, I'm so glad that, I'm so glad that you're understanding and that you love me. You know, I, I've wasted all of our money, but you said <laughs> a few hours ago, for richer or for poor, now it's time. We're poorer. Thank you that you still love me. It's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then he's like, what do you mean what am I talking about? You made that vow to me. You promised that you would love me no matter what. And the only thing that will separate that love is death. And she's like, and you did what? With who? With what money? There's nothing left? Yeah, and I maxed out all my credit cards, but I did it because I knew that you would love me. I knew that you would love me. What do you think she would say to him? Come back into my loving arms, my dear husband, so understanding of my love. She'd be like, man, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Are you kidding me? You don't get it, do you? You don't understand my love for you. You just don't get it. Because knowing that he will be loved and forgiven and cherished forever does not give him license to sin. It gives him all the more reason to cleave and to cling to the one who has committed and pledged that undying love to him. So is it any different when it comes to our relationship with God? 
But we do that a lot, don't we? You know what? Man, I'm so glad that God, my eternal and infinite, perfect, the, the perfect epitome of love, the love defined, forgives me, cherishes me, approves me because of Christ, has nothing to do with what I do. Therefore, I'm going to go and I'm going to keep on sinning. I'm going to go back to my old life. I'm baptized. I'm in now. I think I'm going to heaven. So I'm going to go back to my old life, to my old cronies, to my old stomping grounds, to do the things that I used to do, my old habits. Paul says, may it never be. You have misunderstood the love of God for you. You have misunderstood grace and forgiveness and everything about justification by faith. You don't know the love of God if you think that that gives you a license to go and do whatever you want to do, to mess around with your, uh, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, to cheat on an exam, to steal money from people, to, to be, to, uh, whatever it is. I, you don't need my help to imagine what our sins are. It says dead people don't sin, can't sin, and married people don't cheat on each other because of the fact that they're loved more. The greater the love someone has for us, the more we should want to honor that love. That's what he's saying. But a lot of times I think the reason why we ask that question, hey, is it okay for me to keep on sinning just because of the fact that God loves me? I think the reason some of us ask that is because we've tried to overcome sin. We've tried to change. We've tried to let go of those habits we realize that we couldn't. So we say, is it all right then, God? I've tried to get over this addiction to pornography. I've tried to get over this addiction to this, this eating disorder. I've tried to get over the approval of man. I've tried to get over the affection of, of women. I've tried, to, I've tried to do these things. I've tried to quit drinking. i tried to quit smoking. I can't do So God, is it all right if I just keep on sinning a little bit then? And what Paul is saying is you need to understand the truth and the power of Romans chapter 6. Because when you're baptized into his death, not only are you baptized into his death, but you're baptized into his resurrection life as well. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and he rose again, putting the exclamation point on the finished work of Calvary for the forgiveness of your sins, not only did Jesus remove you from you the penalty of sin, he set you free from the power of sin also. The same Work of the gospel to justify you before God and make you legally as if you never sinned is the same power in you that sanctifies you and causes you to be set free from the power of sin's grip on your life. You no longer need to live in slavery. Before, this is what Augustine said, before you came to know Jesus, it was not possible for you to not sin. You were a slave to sin. But after after Jesus returns and brings us into heaven, it will not be possible to sin. But what Jesus did at Calvary and in his ensuing resurrection is that he has now made it possible for you to not sin. It's possible for you to not sin. It should not always be sin, repent, rinse, repeat. It shouldn't be that. It should be the norm that we overcome sin now not that we continue to give ourselves to sin, if we truly understand the freedom that Christ has won for us and the power that we have. He says you have the, not you are dying, you will die, you're on the path to death, you've got some mortal wounds in you. He says you're dead 
to sin. And so count yourselves alive to Christ. He says, this is not some potential that you have. He says, this is your reality. You are alive in Christ. Resurrection power pumping through you. The power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you if you're a child of God. You are not a slave to sin anymore. He's not saying, okay, visualize this, guys. Visualize this as a running back visualizes him running through the hole and scoring a touchdown. It is potentially there, but you got to work. He says, no, no, no. This is your actual reality now. And two things we need to do. He says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. So the first thing he says, believe. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Later he's saying in verse 11, he says, reckon yourselves. This is true of you. It's your actual, not your potential. You just need to live in the truth of who you already are. Believe this to be true. In the same way that you believe that you're justified, believe in the sanctification, the sanctifying power of Christ in you. Here's another way to see it. Some of you have been maybe to, to Thailand or to Southeast Asia where you got these big old elephants. I know a couple of our sisters have been recently, and they would ride on top of these massive elephants, right? These, I don't know how much they weigh, two tons or a ton or whatever it is, but they're huge, right? Massive elephants that can have people, a whole family of people sitting on top of them. When the owner of these elephants is not sending them out on tours to give people rides. He brings them back in. And a lot of times, the way that the owner keeps the elephant within the confines and the boundaries of his property is that he'll tie a rope to the leg of the elephant and then tie that to a tree or a post or a fence or whatever. Uh, It is some stable thing. And the elephant knows that it is not to move from that place. What if an elephant sees something that he wants to do? He sees a bunch of peanuts somewhere, or he sees something that he wants to eat. Um, why doesn't he break free from that rope and go eat and chase after the thing that he wants to chase after? Because in his mind, he believes that it's powerless to do that. In its mind, it believes that it's a slave to the very thing to which it is roped. Why? Because when that baby elephant pops out of its mommy's bottom and it's uh, weak and has no energy, no strength in it, uh, the owner ties a rope around it and ties it to a tree. And try as it might, that baby elephant has no power to break free. And so in his mind, he tries and he says, it's hopeless, it's useless. Uh, Tries again the next day, sees a rabbit that he wants to eat or, I don't know, peanuts or (laughs) I don't know what elephants eat. He sees something scurrying along and he wants to, but he cannot break free from that rope in that tree. And so as that happens day after day and week after week and month after month, the elephant gets to a certain point in his life where he realizes, you know what? When I'm not free, as long as a rope is on me, I am confined to this place. I cannot ever move from here. And as that elephant grows up and grows strong and mighty and powerful, in its mind, it still believes itself to be a slave to the life that it had come from. You tell that massive elephant, if you could be an elephant whisperer and you could say, hey, elephant, listen to me. You are so much stronger than that rope. You can break free. 
anytime you wanted to. Do it. He could break free. Easy, no problem. You're not saying, elephant, listen, potentially you can do this. I think you have the power in you if you can visualize this, if we can psycho babble talk you into doing this. I think if you'll just visualize yourself mustering up all of the energy and all the strength in you and then break free. Now, go and do it. That's not what we're saying. Saying that elephant has that power in him already. That's his reality. He just doesn't believe it to be true. Guys, Paul's saying the same thing about every one of us who feel like we're addicted to sin and that I've tried to change, but I can't. He says, no, you don't understand the power of the gospel in your life. You don't understand the power of the spirit that raised Christ from your dead is living in you right now. And this is the power to overcome. Anger, greed, envy, jealousy, bitterness, unforgiveness, lack of love, laziness. You have everything in you right now. It's not, hey, you got to visualize this. He's saying, this is your actual right now. If you trust in Christ, here is your reality. And he says, live in it. Right? Live in it. Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase as sin increases? May it never be. Why not? Because you're dead to sin. Dead people can't sin. Married people don't cheat. So first thing. Second thing that we see. What most people say, okay, can I go on sinning? God's going to forgive me anyway. Can I go on sinning? Do I have the freedom to do that? No, because the second thing is what most people think is freedom is actually slavery. What most people think is slavery is really freedom. Starting in verse 15, we see the same question almost. What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law but under grace. A little bit of a nuance. The first in the first verse, the question asked is, shall we go on sinning? Is a habit of sinning like I used to live, is that habitual sin? Okay, God's going to forgive me. And Paul says, no, 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 you can't do that. You've died to that. Dead people don't do that. Married people don't cheat. And so the question, the follow-up is that, okay, maybe not a lifestyle, not a habit, not a pattern of sinning, but he says in verse 15, shall we sin? Like, just one sin. Just one moment by moment, just today I, I choose this, in this temptation, just one time, one look, one theft, one word, one dirty look. I, I can do that, right? God's going to forgive me, right? I can do that. Yeah, of course we're going to be forgiven, but is that the right mentality? It says, of course not. You're not free to do that because here's the thing. What you think is freedom is actually slavery. You follow this path of just one sin, one sin, I'm free to do this. He says, and he'll show you where that ends up. Because you see, in the first half of this chapter, the key word was death. In the second half, 15 to 23, the key word is slavery here. What he says, uh, starting in, in verse 16, obey him as slaves. You are slaves. You are slaves to sin. Verse 17, slaves to sin. Verse 18, slaves to righteousness. Verse 19, body in slavery. Uh, so now offer yourselves, offer them in slavery. Verse 20, when you were slaves. Verse, 20, uh, verse 22, slaves. You see this over and over and over and over. Because he brings up the analogy of slavery in order to, aha, I'm actually talking about freedom. I'm going to bring up this idea of slavery because I want to tell you about what freedom is. Because in your mind, you think you know what freedom is, but I want to expose to you what freedom really is. And in your mind, you think you know what slavery is, but I want to show you what slavery 
really is. And he says in, in verse 19, put this in human terms. He's saying, I, I, I know this is a crass and crude analogy because there are some of you who are actually slaves right now. That's what he's saying. The people that he's writing to who had sold themselves into slavery, right, to sell their family members into slavery, people who had been brought out of a lifestyle of slavery. And so he's using this, and he's being very, he's not just like uh, half-heartedly or flippantly throwing this term around. He's saying there's something important that you know that you need to continue to understand, not only in the physical occupational sense, but in a spiritual sense that is deeply important. He talks about slavery, and he says, here's how you know. All of us are going to be slaves to something. He said, there's only two options here. Some of us will be slaves to sin. And he says, all of us were like this before we came to know Jesus. Um, I, 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 I tried to talk about this in Alpha service, and no one seemed to know what I was talking about. But do you remember, it's either the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. There was, this, uh, there was this music video they did where they were like puppets, right, and like, what, does anyone know who that was? In sync, okay, and that song was called what? No strings attached, okay. Um, in the video, they had strings attached to them, right? Or it made it seem like they were. It, so puppet master says, "Do this," and their arm would do this, right? You have a string on your leg, do this, and weak, weak, right? This is kind of what it was. Here's what he's saying: Before you came to know Jesus, sin was your puppet master. It says, do this, and you had no choice but to follow. You're doing this, and you're just a puppet doing whatever you want to do. He says, but Jesus has come, and he snapped the strings. No strings attached anymore on your life if you're a child of God. Stop acting like you're a slave to sin. Some of us, if we look at our lives, that's what it's like. And then we give this excuse, I couldn't help it. I had to. There was no choice. She made me, he made me, it made me, whatever it was. Oh, I'm just sinful. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. That's what we say. That's true. You're not perfect. You're forgiven. But there's power in us. We don't resign ourselves to sin. Either one of two masters, either sin will master you or God and righteousness will master you. And what most people think, this is freedom, to do whatever I want to do. I do whatever I want to do. But in reality, he's saying you are a slave to sin. Because freedom isn't doing whatever you want to do. It's doing what's right. You try to stop sinning, and you realize, you know what? I'm actually enslaved to it. Freedom isn't doing whatever I want to do. Freedom is doing what's right, what I know to be right, and not doing what I know I ought not do. That's true freedom. So imagine this. As he says, you're no longer a slave to sin. You've got one master now. And, and people understood this in those days. If you are a slave, it's not a part-time job. If you're a slave, you are 24-7 with a master, living with them at their beck and call. Whatever they call you to do, whatever they ask you to do, you do it. You see why Jesus says you can't serve two masters? Because it's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-days-a-week proposition. All of me for all of you is what you're saying if you're a slave to something. You are enslaved to that. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And Paul says here, you can't serve two masters either because all of your life is going to be spent on one or the other. And so you've got this boss. You work in this company. I don't know how you got this job. You got on Craigslist or some shady place. And, and so you start working as a servant or as a, uh, a, you know, as a, uh, a gopher for some, some boss. Right? And, 
And he says, all right, here's your deal. Here's the contract. The contract says you work from 8.30 to 5.30. But when you get in, boss says, no, 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 no. Uh, you read that wrong. It actually said 6.30. So you come in at 6.30. But boss, no one else is here. It's okay. You come in at 6.30 and you start scrubbing the floors and you start um, washing the dishes and you start cleaning the tables and do all this stuff. Okay, does that mean I get to leave at 3.30? No, 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 you get to leave at 7.30. But it said 8.30 to 5.30. No, you leave at 7.30. Oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? And then as soon as you start working, he nitpicks on everything, looking for one speck of dust, and then he gets mad at you, and he yells at you, and he spits on you, and he slaps you, and he calls you names. He says, and I want you to go get me some coffee. Like coffee, okay, what kind would you like, sir? He's like, not what kind. I want you to go and I want you to go find your own beans and roast them and grind them and bring that to him. It's got to taste perfect just the way that I want. And so you bring it, you're like, yes, boss, certainly. And you bring it to him and he drinks it and he hates it and he throws it at you and you got burns all over you. This guy's awful. Like, you know what? Maybe I need a new master. Maybe I need a new boss. So you find out that some of your friends work for this company and, and they say, hey, there's an open door at our company. And you're like, oh, that sounds great. Maybe I'll work at open door. So you go and you, you walk through that open door and you get this job. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this place is amazing. Like the boss is, is great. Instead of asking you to make coffee, she actually or he actually makes you coffee and brings it to you, brings you lunch. Say, hey, you can work whenever you, you're, whatever hours you want. You can just, you leave whenever you want. Like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Now, one day your group with you and your new boss and, and, and your, your crew, you go out to eat. You're at a food court. And someone's like, hey, 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 isn't that your old boss over there? Like at Starbucks getting his own coffee? Ha, <laughs> ha, And you, they start laughing. They're like, oh, he had to get his own coffee. He must not have found someone else to replace me. And so uh, that boss sees you. He walks over. And he's like, you, you, it's you. And he calls your name, and you're, like, getting all scared. He's like, go get me some coffee. What do you say to him? Do you say, yes, boss, certainly. I'll go get you your coffee. Would you like Starbucks or would you like for me to brew it myself? Would you say that? Or would you be like, dude, you kidding me? You ain't the boss of me no more. I'm not under your control anymore. What would you say? Because when it comes to a spiritual level, a lot of us are saying, yes, boss, certainly. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. You want me to hate that person? I'll hate them. You want me to gossip about that person? I'll gossip about that person. And someone says to you, hey, you got a new master. You don't need to listen to them anymore. You're like, ah, oh, but I feel, but I, I, I got to. That, that old boss can say whatever they want to you. You don't have to listen to them, though. And you don't have to listen to them. You're no longer a slave to sin. Because look at what your bosses are paying you. Verse 23. If your bosses sin, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, verse 19 says, hey, it's slavery. You offer your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Here's what we think. Oh, you know what? I go to church. I've given my life to Jesus. Uh, I've gotten baptized. I'm walking with him. I'm in a house church. I go to youth group. I go to youth ministry. I go to SNF, but uh, I just want to be free to do whatever I want to do. He says, you've gone back into slavery to ever-increasing wickedness. 
It's not just, I'll do it one time, but that wickedness gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When he says the wages of sin is death, he's not just talking about eternal separation. He's saying this is a daily death that you die. Every time you bow down to the master of sin, saying every time you do, every day you choose sin, you die a little bit in your heart. You die a little bit and it leads to death. Because the nature of sin as a master, you've heard this before, is it keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. It takes you further than you wanted to go and it costs you a lot more than you're willing to initially pay. That's sin and that's your master. And here we go saying, I'm free! To do whatever I want to do, to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, to put whatever I want in my body, to say whatever I want to say, I'm free. Paul says, no, you're deeply, deeply, deeply mistaken. You've become enslaved to your old master who has been set free. You've been set free from by the power of Christ living in you. Because if you follow that master, Jesus, here's your reality. The gift of God is the life that is eternal. It doesn't just wait for you when you die. It begins the moment you begin to believe. That's freedom. Oh, I don't want to follow the Bible. I don't want to become a slave to religion or to command or obedience. He says, no, no, no. When you become a slave to righteousness, this is where you actually find yourself to be free. Because what most people think is Freedom is really slavery. What most people think is slavery is actually actual, real freedom. Saying you've been set free from that. Every day you've got a choice to make. Which master am I going to serve? Think about Are you enslaved today to what are you enslaved to? What are the things in your life that you try to break free from but you can't? Or you haven't been able to? Paul is saying there's power resurrection power in you, Christ power in you to live in glad and joyful obedience, to break free. He says, so don't offer your bodies, your eyes, your ears, your lips, your tongue, your words, your hands, your feet, your private areas to sin anymore. You're not a slave to that anymore. You're a slave to righteousness. Live in that glorious freedom. That's what he's saying. It's powerful, huge. He, can, he sets us free. If he sets us free, then why would I want to go back to my old boss anymore? Why would I want to go back to my old master anymore? Why would I want to go back to that place? But to be set free, the puppet master's strings, you've been released from them. It's an old story that uh, probably not true, but maybe in some form it is, but Abraham Lincoln, that great writer of the Emancipation Proclamation, Gettysburg Address, setting the slaves free. There was a time when he went to a slave auction. He was a young girl, 13 years old, uh, and he placed a winning bid on her, and he bought her. And he said, uh, they said, she's now yours. And so she's thinking what she's thought at other slave auctions when she was sold. She's thinking what other people have told her is going to happen, that this person is going to own her, is going to treat her however she wants to be. he wants to treat her, do with her whatever he wants to do with her. And so she was bracing herself for that life, stealing herself for that. And Abe Lincoln said, okay, now that I've bought you, I want to let you know that you are mine and I can do with you whatever I want. 
And she understood that, and he said, so what I want to do is I want to set you free. And she had no categories or understanding of what that meant. So what does that mean, that I'm free? It means you're free. You're not a slave anymore. You're free. Go. It's like, does that mean that i free, like, I can go wherever I want to go? Yeah. I can do whatever I want to do? Yeah. I can say whatever I want to say? Yeah. I can live wherever I want to live? Yeah. I can follow whoever I want to follow? Yeah. This blowing her mind, this concept, she starts crying. And she said, if I'm free, then I want to go with you. (laughs) If I'm free, (laughs) then I want to go with you. That's the response of one who's been set free from slavery. Jesus, you set me free. So can I go back to sin? No, 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 no. Jesus, you've set me free. Can I mess around with the things I used to mess around with? Rather, Jesus, you've set me free. Now, I want to go with you, and I want to follow you wherever you go. May that be our confession to Jesus. May that be our lives, to live in the power of Christ in us. Let's pray together. Let's take a couple moments right now to pray to the Lord. What is it that you need to believe? What is it about today's message that you heard that resonates with you because it is contrary to your present way of living life? Who is your master this morning? Christian life is not about perfection. It's about progression. It's about the direction that you're facing. It is better to be an inch from hell while you face heaven than it is to be an inch from heaven while facing hell. What direction are you facing today? Because one of two things will happen. When you go back to the lifestyle of slavery to sin, one of two things will happen. Either the Spirit of God living in you will convict you and challenge you and sin will not be a happy thing for you. Either that will happen and you'll get tired of its taste. Or you're never a child of God to begin with. You and I, we cannot sin and not feel conviction in it if the Spirit of God lives in us. Do you enjoy sinning that you don't think about it? It's not a struggle with sin. You just sin. You enjoy it. Slave to sin and loving life. If that's your life, then Jesus is calling you to come to him for salvation. Find life that is truly life. And if you do feel the conviction of sin in your heart and you've put your trust in Christ, Jesus is saying, listen, you have been just imbued with power from above. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave of righteousness to God. We pray, Lord, help me to believe this. Help me to live who I am. 
to reckon these things that are true to really be true. Lord, help me. Let's pray for a couple moments as we respond to the word of God. Huge message. Sanctification by grace through faith. Let's pray for a couple moments, and then we'll uh, continue to worship the Lord together. Father in heaven, we confess that we need you. We've tasted of the sweet yet eventually bitter taste of sin. And the more, Jesus, you become sweet, the more sin becomes bitter to us. Jesus, would you be sweeter? Would you be more beautiful? Would you be more wonderful to us? that you would get sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. That you would change us day by day, our precious Jesus, making us more and more like you. Help us to live for you and not for sin and not for ourselves, that we'd live for the beauty and the glory of Jesus to be your witnesses in our world. Thank you so much for loving us. We love you, Jesus, because you've loved us first and set us free that we might live in that freedom. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.